Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. Ryan, what headlines have you been following lately? One of the biggest things we're seeing is a widespread baby formula shortage across the United States. And folks are asking, like, how can this happen? How can we have a baby formula shortage in the United States? We, we've seen that there's one company, Abbott, that controls about 40% of the U.S. infant formula market. They just shut down their largest plant in Michigan. They did so voluntarily due to a type of bacteria that was linked to hospitalizations. This caused a reverberating ripple effect across the supply chain. We're talking cover news, state agencies, nutrition programs are really responsible for two-thirds of the baby formula purchasing, and we are at a huge shortage. Now, the good news is as we enter um, the June timeframe, the Abbott facility is now on track to reopen within a week or so, and the Biden administration has been able to supply the United States with something like 2 million bottles worth of specialized infant formula. Uh, They just arrived in Virginia. Some are arriving in Pennsylvania. It's part of this Operation Fly formula program that was able to close the gap. But it does illuminate an issue, right? Illuminates an issue that when there is a shortage and there is, you know, one or two large manufacturers that supply the majority of a drug or or, or in this case, baby formula of the United States, that any issues really have drastic impacts to the United States. And it's not just baby formula, right, Mindy? It's, it's, it's been a long time coming where drugs and really important medical supplies have been in very short supply. This is headline news, obviously, because we are seeing how it impacted hundreds of thousands of people's lives, especially vulnerable populations that really rely on nutrition support for their infants. But when I think about our healthcare system, things as basic as saline, tongue depressors, they have been in short supply through the years. So shortages are not uncommon in the healthcare system. I think we can point to the fragility of global supply chains. But I think there's another reason that also contributes to these types of shortages. And that is just the messiness that we see in the flow of how products make their way into the care setting, as well as reimbursement structures. And so when you think about that, and I I think more specifically, Ryan, like we've been talking about some of the shortages that we've seen in the oncology therapy space. These are life-saving products, products that are critical to a majority of the regimens that are used to treat patients with cancers. I mean, the story behind the headline, I think both with the baby formula shortage, as well as these types of products that we see being short in oncology, is that there are simply just too many single source manufacturers that we are reliant on. And that opens up a whole world of risk should there be an issue with quality control. Or should a manufacturer decide the economics don't work in their favor to continue to manufacture the product? When I think about what contributes 
to all of these shortages in a high-performing healthcare system, right? It's not only supply chain, it's money, it's the economics, it's the reimbursement, and every single part of the channel has responsibility or is a contributor to this major issue. And who's ultimately impacted? Patients and users. So this is why, you know, I think the baby formula is headline news because it just became so acute so quickly because of the reliance on Abbott and the market share that they have. But let's also be aware, right, that this is a recurring theme that we see in our healthcare system. And it's baffling in some ways when you think about how large our healthcare system is. And in other ways, it's frustrating because for a system that has so much money flowing through it, we should not be facing these shortages and we should not be putting our end users, patients, consumers, as well as providers, we shouldn't have them shorthanded, right? They need to have these products in order to continue to help deliver care and and health to individuals. So I think this is headline news and and it's interesting to see how the government stepped in very quickly actually to react to this. I wish we could see more solutions being brought to the table for other therapeutic areas where shortages seem to be commonplace. Mindy and Ryan, you guys raise such great points around the complexity of the supply chain, whether it is related to baby formula, medical equipment that we use every day, or even some of these life-saving drugs, right, in terms of how interconnected everything is and how the incentive alignment, whether it's due to you know vertical consolidation, whether it is the incentives we have in life sciences to reward branded manufacturers over generic manufacturers, it all can coalesce in these, these key crisis moments and is something that regulators really need to, to keep in mind as we're thinking through what have we learned from the situation and how can we change things in the future. Another area where we're really looking at improving things in the future, I think, coalesced by our current situation um, socially, economically, has to do with diversity in clinical trials and making sure that we are able to represent the appropriate groups. Mindy, do you have any thoughts on a new report that's come out from the Committee on Improving Representation of Women and Underrepresented Minorities in Clinical Trials? Jen, I think one of the things that we are clearly seeing, and this is a trend that we pointed out earlier this year, right, is that the equity imperative is really coming on strong this year. And I think this report really highlights a couple of things. One, improvements have been made on balancing the percentage of men to women when it comes to inclusion in clinical research. However, there are other groups that have been left out. And that includes members of the LGBTQIA community, older adults, pregnant and lactating individuals, as well as people with disabilities. So there's still a lot of work to be done. And within this report, right, the committee looked at the FDA's drug trial snapshot data, and it found that in 2020, white participation was 74%. Now that's a decrease of about 10% from 2014. However, the report said that this data also captures increased inclusion in international trial sites. What we see as a result, right, is that this lack of adequate inclusion results in prospective patient hesitancy. I mean, just 
looking at these findings in the case of COVID-19 vaccines, right, the absence of having pregnant individuals in trials led to vaccine hesitancy in this population. I think the other thing that we are seeing kind of running parallel to this is that the FDA is trying to combat the problem by addressing existing shortcomings. They are adding more requirements, right, for recruitment plans when it comes to submitting an IND, which is an investigational new drug application, or an investigational new device exemption application. There are some new representation data requirements for journal publications and some congressional requirement for the FDA to enforce accountability and incentive structures when it comes to this. I think about some of the headline news we've seen lately too, where the FDA has actually rejected applications where clinical trials have only been done in one particular region of the world and how the FDA is really trying to become, I think, much more forceful in encouraging manufacturers to run clinical trials that are just more diverse. I think that plays into that equity imperative that we continue to talk about. So this is one report. It's one agency, but I think it sets the tone for how manufacturers need to be thinking going forward about the design of their clinical trials, recruiting for trials, and ensuring that they have really good, adequate representation across the board when it comes to running these trials. Yes, it's definitely great to see the FDA really try to pull through some of this thinking in their policy in these forthcoming user fee agreement acts. I think they form a key arm of how we can help scale and incentivize diversity in terms of what is represented in clinical trials, representing the true diversity and intersectionality of the patient populations that are truly affected really expanding our thinking when it comes to how do we conceptualize that true representation within the study design, within the study population itself. I think another key area in terms of really pulling that through has to do with with our payers and particularly for CMS being able to factor into their, their coverage decisions, how quickly they make them, what the coverage is, what is that representation within the study that backs that particular drug? And you know, what, are, what are the implications then in terms of the coverage as means of improving health equity and making sure that it works for, for all patients? Another area where CMS has maybe come under fire recently is related to Medicare Advantage. Mindy, could you tell us a little bit more about that? It's not uncommon to see the American Hospital Association and health plans have a difference of opinion when it comes to elements of the healthcare industry that impact the sectors that they support, right? So related to Medicare Advantage and CMS coming under fire, the American Hospital Association has asked the federal government to launch a series of probes into commercial payers who represent Medicare under Medicare Advantage that routinely deny access to care and services. A recent report from a federal watchdog found that some Medicare Advantage plans 
have used what we call prior authorization, which is a utilization management policy. They use that quite frequently, but have used it to deny care. And it is in direct violation of Medicare coverage rules. In 2019, the OIG, which is the Office of Inspector General, looked at a random sample of approximately 250 prior authorization denials made by 15 major health plans or insurers back in 2019. And it found that only 13% of the denials actually followed the Medicare coverage requirements, and so did only 18% of the payment denials. So I would say from a plan perspective, these health insurers that offer Medicare Advantage plans are pushing back and saying, listen, this was not a denial because we wanted it to be a denial. It's a denial because we needed additional information in order to approve coverage. And that is what prior authorization enables us to do. Ryan, I know speaking from the AHA, you understand that providers have a different perspective on this. And I think this illustrates, right, the difference of opinion that plans and providers sometimes have when it comes to providing and covering the right care at the right time to the right patient. And so the the Department of Justice hasn't actually commented on whether it's going to take up the AHA's request. But I do think that the AHA is going to push hard on this. And I think that we are probably going to see AHIP, which is the body that represents health plans, kind of push equally as hard on the way that plans are using prior authorization in an adequate way to solicit more information from providers in order to cover the care that is offered for Medicare Advantage members. But I'd love to hear your take on it because I'm sure from a provider sector lens, you have an interesting perspective as well. Yeah, Mindy, the the idea of prior authorization, it really does require us to talk a little bit about the interworkings of workflow within either urgent care or a medical office or even an acute setting. Prior authorization is this process where clinicians and doctors on behalf of a patient get the approval from the patient's insurers and, and in this kind of use case, it's Medicare Advantage, before they deliver a treatment or a service. So think about that. A physician or a nurse practitioner has to get, and many, many times we're talking an old school fax has to be produced to the to the Medicare Advantage plan to make sure that something is approved. And initially designed, I think, properly to make sure that patients are receiving optimal care. But if you think about the way that our EMR works, the way that clinical workflows are, these procedures and services are really at the bequest of the of the physician, right? So it's really tough for providers to see the the delay in these prior authorizations. It's very frustrating. We're talking everything from CT scans and MRIs to really important X-rays before advanced imaging. These are the things that are leading to the denied request when you dig deep into this study. More so, things like inpatient rehabilitation facilities. I'll add even, you know, home infusion gets denied often for Medicare Advantage. I can see how the provider side gets very frustrated with this because without these really important and key clinical criteria to help patients, these prioritizations delay the care that's needed for some of these Medicare Advantage benefits. Yeah, and we go back to saying who ultimately is impacted by this? Our patients. And 
this is one of those headlines where there's going to be two truths to the story and somewhere in the middle there's got to be some some way to to resolve this in a way that benefits patients and i think some of it may require legislation that sets some standards and requires things like adoption of electronic prior authorization or other types of reforms um, but undoubtedly when you have a very large population that's aging into medicare this situation only gets probably louder in terms of just the number of denials that may may actually increase based on the fact that prior authorization is a utilization management policy that is being heavily adopted by plans as we move forward and as they seek to not only control costs but ensure quality. So I, I think this is just one of those industry headlines, but it's important to be thinking about it because whatever the outcome is may dictate the way that prior authorization is actually adopted and utilized going forward, whether it's for clinical care or for pharmaceutical access. This idea of patients really being caught in the crossfire has pervaded all of our, our headlines this month in the U.S. and I think really sets the stage for where we are right now in our healthcare system and healthcare policy here in the States as we're you know getting ready for the midterms, as we're continuing to evolve in this pandemic, as we're seeing momentum in things like the, the Transparency Acts come into effect. There's been a lot of discussion around how do we keep patients out of the crossfire? How do we limit the impact on direct care of the complexities of our healthcare system that we have created here in the United States? So it's definitely never, never a dull moment here. We know it's always changing. It's the only constant here in the U.S. So I'm excited to hear what we're talking about next month when it comes to news, but particularly excited to be able to dive into more deeply in our spotlight episode in June, what are some key efforts that life science organizations can undertake to really impact that second story we talked about and improve diversity in their clinical trials. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health Podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.